All right, we're going to hop right in and, uh, and ask you some questions about, I don't know, we'll start with sports. Uh, baseball fans, anybody baseball fan here? Oh, wow, like actively against baseball? It's like such a weird thing to get booze from. Um, okay, if someone's a power hitter in baseball, what does that mean? <laughs> they can't play any other position. All right, you guys are so uh, wonderfully sarcastic. Why, Sean? Why, why? What makes Bryce Harper a power hitter? What's the definition of it, man? Yeah. Strong, right? Um, gets the... Uh, I was going to say. Gets the ball over the fence, right. We have all of this, all of this force put into an object that gets it going. That's power. Someone's powerful hitter. It's that sort of a thing. Uh, but at the same exact time, if a speech, sometimes we use the phrase that a speech is powerful, right? Like the, so, so that's different. So we're just putting this out, or, or a, a movie quote, or a, a scene um, from, from a movie or, or something. So what does that mean? If something's got power, if there's a powerful statement. It has the ability to move us or to move things. So we already, just as our little pre precursor here, we already have the capacity to understand power in multiple ways, even in our world. But unfortunately, we tend to resort, when we think about power, when we think about using power, we tend to resort to the most violent ways of thinking. Force, control, coercion. So, here's what we're doing. We're in the middle of a conversation of looking at the different marks of a Jesus-centered community. Almost a, a second reformation that is reclaiming what the Christian story was supposed to be and has been for many years, but has been lost in kind of the cultural commingling of faith and society, and world, and dominant religion, and all sorts of other stuff. And so we've been looking at five, we are looking at five different statements that help us reorient our, our life as disciples of Jesus. First one that we talked about a couple weeks ago was a different way to read. That when we look at the scriptures, God always looks like Jesus, and all scripture is properly read through him. That's going to be the kicker. That's the key to understanding everything else, to understanding life path, who we are. God always looks like Jesus. And everything that we read or do is understood through the idea that God is Jesus. Uh, last week we talked about a bigger gospel, and that's that God's salvation includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the future kingdom now. So, so we were reminded that faith is not just this individual enterprise, but we are called into a community, and that very community and building that community is crucial even to the unfolding and making of everything new that God is doing one day, and God wants to partner with people to do it. So it's not just about you. It's not just about me, it's about us. And you saw that wonderful graphic that really brought home the message last week. <clears throat> and then, we're call also this week, we're going to talk about a radical relationship with power. So Christians, Jesus people, we understand power through a completely different lens. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. And then the next two weeks, uh, a spirit-led purpose. We're reminded that as people of Jesus, we trust the Holy Spirit for leadership to partner with God. And then finally, we'll talk about a new approach to disagreement, which is, by the way, some crossover to this morning. Uh, the church is defined by our shared center, not the lines we draw. 
Okay, so that being said, that's the, uh, that's the kind of the, the framework that we're, that we're going through for the next few weeks. So all that to say that, um, that as, we, as we look at this, we have to understand that according to John, and like we talked about the first week, the only one who has ever given us a truly clear, truly clear view of God is Jesus. So how we understand everything about how God works and who God is must be sent through this lens of Jesus. All right? So others only understood shadows of God. It doesn't mean that they didn't see God, but it meant that they didn't have clarity. So you get outlines, you get silhouettes, you get glimpses, but you're missing the exact shape and color that we get when we meet Jesus. All right? So, so that's the, the foundational idea. <clears throat> and then we've been talking about how the cultures that we live in and the assumptions that we bring shape our world, or uh, the, the assumptions that we bring about our world shape our opinions about God, right? So, all of this works together, and I ask you, is it any surprise that between those two ideas, the pre-Jesus understandings of God and the cultural values around us, that we assume, or at least default to the idea that when we talk about God's power, it looks like this, Right? Or it looks like this. Or it looks like this. These are our default assumptions. And like we talk about every week, you are not hard-pressed to find your scripture verses to back you up. Okay? But that's not our goal. Our goal is to find Jesus. And so, so when we look at power, um, the problem is that the power that Jesus reveals looks nothing like that image of God. Anybody used to sing this out? When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. So, so we have this idea. You know, God is powerful. Almost every one of us God believers in this room would, would say, I agree with that statement, that God is powerful. Okay? We just sang how, how the, God's name is powerful. Right? We did, like, and by the way, name, Hebrew understandings of name means God's character. God's character. Who God is, is able to move things that are immovable otherwise. God's powerful. So, anyways, all of this, all of this makes it difficult for us to actually notice how clear the scriptures are about what God's power looks like. Specifically in the early church, who understood it well. Paul's writing about Jesus, and he's comparing a Jesus-centered understanding to the cultures around him in Corinth. And he talks about God's power a lot, but about how the cross is the key to understanding it. So he's talking about how radically different the message of Jesus is. And he says, Jews demand signs to know, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But, those, to, but to whom those has, God has called, whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, here's here's what I default to thinking about. This idea, that last sentence, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I don't know if you've heard this verse before, but there's something in my mind that kind of thought for so many years that what that means is that God 
with his little pinky can like crush any army. Like the weakest part of God is beefier than the strongest part of people, right? Like for the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And just the, the same idea that the foolishness of God is wiser than human. So God's stupidest thought is still better than yours. <laughs> like that's, that's the idea that kind of we default when we think about, about God and, and us in this message. So, so this whole idea brings up the question then, why is God's power made known through Christ crucified and not through Christ resurrected? Because all through Paul's message, when he talks about God's power, it's always about the cross. It's never about the resurrection. You want something powerful, what about defeating death? That's pretty powerful. It's important in our Christian journey, (laughs) believe me. But that's not what Paul talks about. Specifically, just a few verses earlier, um, Paul says that the power of God, the, the message of the cross, is the power of God. So what... So what Paul is saying is that the power of God is made known. Oh, that's a bad one. The the power of God is made known through a cruciform shape. I just tried this. Ten minutes. There we go. Um, Through a cruciform shape. All right? So God's power looks cross-shaped. Now here's the thing. What God does on the cross and with the cross And how it affects power depends on where you think God is at in this whole situation. If God's up here doing something down onto the cross to Jesus, then that matches our cultural understanding of power. Power is domination. God's got to kill something. Jesus said, I mean, not my preference, but I will. And so God kills something and demonstrates how powerful God is to destroy sin. However, that's not the image that we get in the scriptures. Over and over and over again, when the early disciples talk about this, they said Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God is not up there. God is right here and right here hanging on the cross. The Father and the Son were one in that moment. Even though Jesus quotes the Psalms and says, My God, why have you forsaken me? It's the human experience of suffering that he gives voice to. But the point is that when we understand that Jesus was fully God experiencing the suffering of the world and that Paul says the cross is the power of God, then what that means is that according to God, power does not look like dominating another. Power actually looks like self-sacrificial love. Power looks weak. Power looks like refusing to use force to change the world. Power looks different than all of our assumptions. Power doesn't mean that God's little pinky can crush your atomic bomb. Power means that the most, the strongest force on the face of the earth is love that absorbs violence that absorbs sin, that absorbs wrongdoing, and does not spit it back out into the world. That's what power looks like. Self-sacrificial, self-suffering love. And so this should change, right? This should change everything. We see this embodied over and over and over in Jesus. 
Jesus chose to empty himself, to embrace powerlessness again and again. Was it because he didn't want to change things? Jesus didn't choose power by domination because he didn't really want to change things? No, obviously, because he didn't want to impact the world? No, Jesus embraced powerlessness because he had a mission to accomplish. And self-emptying love was the only method powerful enough to accomplish that mission. To reveal the Father's heart, to overcome evil, and to reconcile the world to himself. So that's why we believe so deeply that Jesus reveals to us that the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom, evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. There are too many examples to count, but as I thought about where this might cross over into our lives, I think we can learn from Jesus when we see that he re- that specifically, whoops, wrong way, that he specifically refused to use force or controlling power to prove his identity, to promote his status, or to accomplish his mission. Because we are all tempted to use force or controlling power to do all of those things sometimes in our own lives, right? But in Matthew 4, Jesus is experiencing these temptations, right? He's out in the desert, and the tempter meets him, the adversary meets him, and, and, and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels there on this really high, high, high peak, and, and they'll lift you, I'm, I'm sorry, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. Use the power that you have. You say you've got all these angels, these legions of angels available to you. In fact, the, the, Satan, the, the tempter here, doesn't even question that. He says, go ahead, but just, just prove it. Not because he doesn't believe it. <laughs> That's not the story. The story is because he's getting Jesus to try to use power to form his own identity. All right? And Jesus' response is, don't put God to the test. Scriptures also say that. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm not going to to use my power. Even though I have that power, I'm not going to use it in a way to prove my identity to you or to anybody else. And over and over we see that. But also to promote his status. Later on in the book of Matthew, interestingly, um, we get another testing moment when Jesus is in the middle of his crucifixion. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. So, like, you do, do your miracles. You've said you've done miracles, you know. Call on the angels again. Be rescued. And prove to us who exactly you are. Promote yourself and we'll worship you. And Jesus, again, refuses to do that. Show your power. We don't hold that Jesus was incapable of it. But for some reason, Jesus said, no, this is not how I'm going to promote who I am in the world. So over and over again, and then finally accomplish his mission. I think this is so interesting. We're, we get these stories that Jesus knew that people had intended to come and make him king by force. The Jewish people, when he was doing miracles and everything like that. And over and over again, when those moments come, he hides. It's the only time Jesus is scared. <laughs> I don't know. Don't take that in the wrong way. Um, but Jesus withdraws. He gets out of there because he says, they're going to try to make me king by force and lead this way. And that is not my method. That is not the way I work. And he refuses to do it. But it would have accomplished the mission so well, right? To get the message out, to save lots of people, to get a big platform, to liberate the Jewish people. All of those things could have been accomplished maybe. But Jesus says, I will not use power in the dominant ways to accomplish this mission. Later on he reminds, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. He says, listen, I don't play by your rules, friends. And by the way, we're going to talk just a little bit. We probably won't mention this, so this is just freebie. That some people will be like, you know, like, well, no, wait, use force. Well, Jesus told those, he told Peter to bring two swords. Remember that story? When Jesus said, hey, my accusers come, now is the time to be prepared for a battle. And, and he says, if you don't have a sword, you should sell, sell your stuff and buy one. And Peter goes, here, we have two swords. And Jesus goes, that's enough. For some weird reason, we think that Jesus was saying that's adequate for the fight ahead. Instead of what we might say to our own children when they're being annoying and not getting the point. We say, that's enough. Come on. You're missing the point. Enough. Enough silly talk, right? Jesus is saying that. He's he's saying, oh, you don't understand. I'm, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing you for what will be a deep, a deep battle up ahead but I'm not going to fight the way that you think I'm going to fight because that's not how we use power. It's not how we wield it. So over and over and over, we understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom like this. And when we do, the question that we must ask is, in a social context in which everyone clamors for power to get their way, often at the expense of other people, what would it look like for our church and for God's church to model a radically different and altogether beautiful kind of power in the process of pointing people to a radically different and altogether beautiful God. To review so far, because I know how much you like my work. (laughs) So, I got more responses to two animated graphics last week than I have to a sermon in six months. So, case in point, Spent all week working on this. Our assumptions of what power looks like are this. However, boom, what Jesus reveals real power looks like is this. Look at this. You see that? That's it. That's all I got. Thank you. Okay. It's, I'll tell you what, this is, this is what you pay me for. Uh, so, so there is this upside down message that we are seeing Jesus begin to bring by his life, by his teachings, and it looks like power that lifts up and power that refuses to fight back in the ways that we have been taught you must fight back. All right? This looks like how we would respond to those who would be our enemies, but also how we just hold leadership and influence in our lives, okay? So when we think about power, We're going to look at these two categories, how it would look like in response to enemies, but then also um, how it looks like just in leadership and influence. So, first, let's talk about how Jesus teaches us to regard enemies in, in this way, because it's the exact opposite of what we tend to find in the world, right? In the world, it's considered normal to respond in kind when someone verbally or emotionally or physically attacks us, blow for blow. By contrast, Jesus teaches us something completely different. And he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What a misunderstood passage. So, first of all, the idea of do not resist an evil person, the word that's used for resist is the Greek word that is used when 
during, during a, a battle, the moment that the two armies get to each other and hit. That's the word about resist. It means force for force, equal and opposite. It's the moment that everything meets. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you encounter evil, when you encounter an enemy, however that is defined, and I, I challenge you to be very careful how you define enemies, because we're pretty quick to label someone an enemy when maybe they're just a neighbor with a different perspective. But, um, but, but in this moment, Jesus says, don't hit with an equal and opposite force mirroring the way that they are doing things, but just to accomplish your purpose. He says, I'm going to teach you a different way of doing things. Um, Soraya and Aline, can I have you come here and help me with something? Thank you. I promise you don't have to say any words. Okay, thanks. I'm going to make a, I'll make a little pathway for you here. Come on up through the stairs. All right, so the example that Jesus gives is really important that we understand because this has been misunderstood and misused. All right, so Aline, I need you right here. And Soraya, over here. Yep, just facing each other. Okay, so Jesus gives an example. And he gives an example of an oppressive relationship, okay? And so here, both of you cheat out just a little bit so people can see you. Thanks. So, so what Jesus says is, listen, you know when I talk about someone slapping someone. <laughs> and here's why you know about that. Because in the world of inequal and unequal relationships, what you would do to insult or put someone in their place was you would slap them, okay? This was not about having a fight. <laughs> have you seen those stupid videos where people stand there and they have like slap battles? Someone gets like hit across the room. You're not going to do that. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyways, so what would happen would be um, a slave owner could slap their their slave to remind them of their place or it's messed up a husband to a wife or a parent to a child or a Roman to a Jew okay so to uh, slap is different than punch and it's a clearly different word but here's the thing so let's let's find out what's going on to slap someone was to put them in their place and remind them that you are above them okay really really important so what do we have if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, so can you both put your left hand behind your back? Because the left hands were not really appropriate to use in this culture. The left hand was used for things that happened when you had to go to the restroom and you didn't have normal toilets and toilet paper. So the left hand was not used in any way in this culture. You couldn't even wave at someone with your left hand. That was like doing something else. So... So it was very offensive. So the left hand was never used. So, let's see. Here, we've got our, we've got our Roman. Let's be a Roman. Okay, Aline? All right. So, can you please point to Soraya's right cheek, Aline? Yeah, this one, right? Okay. All right. So, what we're getting is if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. So let's just do a slow motion presentation of what this would look like without inflicting any actual harm at the moment. Okay, so go ahead, Roman. Take a shot. I mean, I mean, jet, like, yeah. Okay, slowly. Ready? I'll, I'll help you. Ready? Ryan, make the face. Ready? Okay, so, so this is what we have going on. Clearly right cheek, we know right hand. 
It was a backhand slap. This was a, a, a normal part of a messed up cultural reality of injustice, okay? Now, Raya, if your right cheek is slapped and you turn the other cheek to them, try to slap her with your right hand on the right cheek. Mm, No, it's always a backhand. You can't really do it, can you? You can't. You're right. You can't do it. Because if you turn the other cheek, what Soraya is saying is if you're going to hit me, you have to use something else. How else would you use your hand to hit if it's the right side? An uppercut, right? Boop. Okay. All right. So the message that Jesus is saying, and it's often been, it's often been turned into something. It's often been turned into you are just supposed to let abusers continue to abuse. You're supposed to let evil people win. And instead what Jesus is saying here is our methods are different. But when someone would turn the other cheek as a Roman walks down and say, B, get out of my way, peasant. What they're saying is, if you're going to hit me, you need to hit me as an equal. He doesn't say get ready for a a fist fight, but he does say, and, and what happens if, if that happens? If Soraya says to you, if you're going to hit me, you have to hit me as an equal. What's going on in your head? You're like, are, are you going to hit her? You would never treat her as an equal, right? But then if you don't hit her, is she, is she winning? Did she just claim the power in the relationship? Did she just turn the tables on their heads? She, she kind of did, right? Yeah, yeah, thanks, girls. Um, so... so Um, So I think sometimes when we think about the radical relationship with power that Jesus brings us, the, the one extreme is to say that we are supposed to not have any influence over evil. And that's not what Jesus ever teaches. Jesus teaches us to learn to resist evil and change systems, but never by using the methods that brought the evil systems into place originally. Okay? So we cannot kill people to show people that killing people is wrong ever, under any circumstance. Because then we take on the same method of the one who did evil in the first place and just claim that we now have the right to do it. We, 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 can't, we can't be insulted by somebody and then get back at them by deciding to talk horribly about them to everybody else. We can't get a name caller by calling them names. My gosh, politicians have to learn this and so do you and me, right? Some politician is horrible to people, and we decide that the way to even the balance is to consistently make fun of them, and then everyone's like, yeah, you're all the same, right? Christians, we're called to a higher standard. We're called to a different way of influencing the world, and it's, it's not the way that the world functions, because all you do is you meet with equal and opposite forces, and you don't model anything different and radical, and nobody has any reason to take notice. So, so this, this is the beauty and the challenge, right? Um, between resorting to violence and the use of force as other people do on one hand and doing nothing on the other, Jesus points us to a third way that is powerful, but not by evil means. It even resists 
evil with the possibility of the aggressor or the oppressor moving to repentance and reconciliation. Paul teaches the same things along these lines when when he had learned from Jesus. So he says in Romans 12, he starts talking a little bit before this, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. We're never to repay evil for evil and never retaliate against an evildoer, which is 17 and 18 there, which is to say we must not be overcome by evil, but are instead to overcome evil with good. All right? Um, So Paul concludes, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Here we go. The image of burning coals placed on someone's head is a reference to coming under conviction. All right? To bow in humility. To realize that something needs to change. All right? So again, Paul is suggesting that by responding to aggression with love, rather than violently defending ourselves, we expose the wrongfulness of the action. And as we saw was true with Jesus' teaching, this opens up the possibility that the aggressor or the wrongdoer or whoever's perpetrating evil will wake up and turn from the wrongfulness of their actions. So, so there is this radical reorientation of how Jesus' people are to use force and power because according to God's very self, what power looks like is self-suffering love and care. All right? Violence-absorbing, sin-absorbing love. So like I mentioned, there's the, there's the radical relationship with power as it relates to like violence and enemies, but also, also about leadership and influence, all right? This is the other part. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, and he says to them, hey, in this world, all the people that are in charge, they know it and they love it, all right? They lord it over their people, which means they constantly are aware that I'm bigger, I'm higher than you, I'm better than you, and I hold that power carefully. And yet, he said, he said, we call them benefactors is the word, the, the most direct translation. But like, you know, they're called friends of the people, representatives of the people. But we know that's not true, right, is what he's saying. It's like, you know that that's, there's, there's not, they're not a part of the people. They're holding power over people. So you cannot be a part of a community if you're using power to hold over others. Those who are the greatest among you, among you it's going to be different though. He says, hey, we got a different way of dealing with power and authority. So among Among us, it's going to be a totally different world. Those who are the greatest should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Um, I just want to to bring your attention to something really, really small. Uh, Notice that Jesus doesn't say that the leader should be the servant, but like a servant. What I mean by that is that Jesus is not suggesting we stop being leaders and influencers when we choose to serve. He's saying that's what leadership actually is. That's what it is. So he doesn't say, those of you that are leaders should stop it with your influence and just choose to be a helper. He says, no, the way you lead well is to choose to take on the nature of servanthood. The way you hold power is to use it for the sake of other people. The way you influence is to use your influence for the sake of other people. You release yourself. You pour yourself out for others. Biblical word for it is kenosis, when Jesus empties himself in, in the book of, uh, in, in Ephesians 2, Philippians 2, thanks. 
in Philippians 2. It's this self-emptying when you get this, uh, this, this poem and this early hymn of the church. This, this self-emptying that Jesus doesn't try to hold on to power, but instead makes himself nothing. Lays down his life for other people. This, this is influence, giving away your power to empower another people, another person. So when we find ourselves having power, it's meant to be shared, particularly with those who have little power. Real simple. When we find ourselves having power, it's meant to be shared, particularly with those who have very little power. I learned this lesson from a Canadian woman named Chantal. Um, Chantal Huininck is an incredible leader and disciple maker. Uh, She's from Waterloo um, in Canada, and she uh, has a number of, of pretty severe disabilities that uh, limit her from being able to walk on her own. Uh, she can't see well, and, uh, and her speech, uh, she's unable to take a deep breath. So when she speaks, she has to speak in short bursts very quickly. And um, I got to hear Chantal share during um, one of our Jesus Collective events a few months ago. And she told the story of how... Um, of how when she began to realize how many, uh, how many things were difficult in her own life for her to thrive, how much she relied on other people. For example, uh, no one gets in trouble when you have to make a meeting and you require public transit and the bus to come pick you up is 45 minutes late and you miss the meeting. Everyone just says, whoops, but you get fired. And so she realized that there were a number of, of injustices that were taking place. And so she ran for city council, and she won a seat on city council. But in order for her to win a seat, she realized that other people had to advocate for her and give up some of their power. And so what she talked about was what it means. So I I listened to a woman who demographically would be on the lowest end of all power and influence in our world. A woman with extreme disability and and, uh, unable to Um, do a number of life functions without a caretaker and caregiver. And I listened to her say, as a Jesus follower, what Jesus is teaching me is how to release all the power I have for the people who don't. How to learn to give my voice over to the ones who, for a long time, were like I was, feeling like I was not able to make changes. Right now, she advocates for accessibility and um, for uh, transportation rights, to make sure that people who can't get around on their own are still able to thrive and use their gifts. Um, Now, the reason that I share a little bit about Chantel's story is not because, OMG, she's so inspirational as a disabled person. It's because when I sat there listening to her, God was discipling me. And I saw the wisdom and I saw the need for the message that she's bringing. <laughs> and she happens to be a disabled person or a person with disability. But she was the first one to say, I don't want to hold on to all this power that I have. And I'm thinking, how, you have hardly any power at all. Think about all the power I have. And here you're teaching me about how to give up power. Man. And so, as I heard her say, Um, that the key to human flourishing, the Jesus way, is learning to share power with others. 
She said, I need to set the example first. She shared, I'm trying to get better at sharing my power with others, which is very difficult for me sometimes because I love power. And she encourages us to ask these questions. What relationships do you have with people who are not yet represented in decision-making that you're a part of? What steps can you take to support them in such roles or invite them to imagine themselves in new ways? The Jesus way of holding power is learning that we all have power. What happens if you parents, the next time that your child is struggling with something and you're frustrated with them and telling them they need to do better, what would happen if instead you said, help me understand, what would, what would excite you or encourage you to, to do some things differently here? If you had to choose, what would be helpful? That's a releasing of power, right? Some of you have work relationships where you are the boss. What happens when you create cultures where you share that power that you have and invite collaboration and invite dignity? What does it look like for those of you who have platforms of some way or another releasing that to elevate voices who haven't had the same opportunities that you have had to be able to gain those platforms? I'll, uh, I'll be, if you don't know, I'll be leaving for sabbatical in 10, 10 Sundays. Uh, first time in my life, but certainly first time since Life Path started 13 years ago now, uh, almost 13 years ago. And uh, I'll be gone for three months. And uh, I have a lot of power in this church. A lot. Um, I make a lot of decisions. We try to work together as a team, but I'm the only person that's full-time hired here. Um, and so, so that's just the way it sometimes happens. My voice tends to be the most prominent from up front. Um, this upcoming season is an incredible opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to relinquish power. Um, sometimes I hold on to it for reasons that I think are really good. Sometimes I just like being in charge. But those are mostly, um, and, and sometimes I don't want other people to get burnt out, you know, so I'll do it myself. Those are really poor excuses. Uh, and I tell you, in light of all of that, my own personal identity is directly linked very much, very much to Life Path. So it's the right time for both me and for our church to do some fresh work in this area. I am so excited to continue to build this healthy identity for a few months without, a, without one single person holding the power. It's going to be quite a journey. I'm so excited. We have some cool things planned some fresh voices to be able to hear, some experiences. Um, I'm going to be doing my own thing with my family, which is going to expose me to new voices and fresh experiences as well. Uh, but what a wonderful opportunity for new layers of shared power in this upcoming season for us to model that and the season beyond it to set us up for some fresh ways. Because I sense that one of the things that Jesus wants to shape in me during my sabbatical in, in April, May, June uh, is how to equip and encourage new voices and gifts to flourish, to flourish in this community for the years to come. So it, it's exciting. At any given time, you're going to hear more about it, but it might feel chaotic in some ways. Um, but our vision team and leadership team are an amazing group of people who share power so well um, and make it easy for me to release um, and trust in, in fresh ways. 
But if we, if we do it with love and humility on all sides, then this amazing spirit-led transformation will be able to follow. Um, so God is powerful, friends. God is really powerful. And God has empowered the church to be powerful as well. But our power will only be transformative when it looks like Jesus. When it is the power of self-giving love. When it's the power that refuses to play by the rules of the world even when it's hard. So may God be with us in that journey. Amen.